So it's September 23rd. It's officially autumn, so I just wanted everybody to know that it's okay to put pumpkin spice in your coffee beverages now. I wouldn't recommend it, but it's okay. It's no longer sinful. That ends, the strict end date on that is December 21st, the first day of winter, I think. Um, more importantly, uh, when we came in, we have programs in the back, as usual, or on the coffee station. Um, you might need your connection card today, even if you're a regular, if you're new. We'd love to have your contact info so we can let you know what's going on and restore uh, over the coming months. If you're not old, but a veteran, let's say, of Restore Church, uh, we have some things coming up this fall you might have questions about or you might want to express interest in. You can do that on the hard copy of the connection card and putting it in the connection card box before you leave, or you can do that on our app. You can fill out the connection card virtually as well. Uh, also in the program, there's Kid City News, and I want to talk about Kid City for a second because we are excited about some of the things we got coming up this fall for Kid City. Uh, one of those things is we have new curriculum that is going to, um, this is the, the first time we've ever had dedicated children's space in six years of a church. Uh, in the past, we've been meeting in bars and like hiding liquor bottles before the kids come in. And this time we have like, oh, well, we actually have a nursery and we have a kid's room where there's toys and there's crafts and there's activities. And with new curriculum, we want to step it up the, the level of engagement up even more for our kids. And with that, um, it's also the new curric- curriculum is going to be a real blessing for our uh, team members that serve in Kid City. We want to go from two classrooms to three classrooms in Kid City over the coming months, which means we're going to need around 10 more people to serve uh, on average in, in Kid City. So we're looking for 10 new team members. If you're not serving in Kid City, it's once a month. You can serve in the nursery, the pre-K, or the elementary. Um, the elementary is a piece of cake. They're really quiet, um, ob- like just almost abnormally mellow. I'm being a little sarcastic, but it is fun to serve in, in elementary. So if you're interested in that or convicted to serve in Kid City, uh, we would love that. Ten more people over the coming months. Another celebration we have coming up in two weeks is our sixth anniversary celebration as a church. So... We are moving into the elementary age, speaking of that, uh, as a church. That's going to be October 7th. We're going to be doing something different on that Sunday. We're going to have dinner church. We've never done this before. So we, have, we actually have a venue for it now. There's round tables in the storage. So we're going to set up round tables throughout the space here, chairs around each one, and we're going to do a giant pitch-in dinner that Sunday afternoon as a church. So we're going we're gonna to create like a sign-up genius for that. We're going to be sending that out to the database this week, posting that on social media so sign up to bring something, bring something tasty. Don't bring like a half leftover Domino's pizza from like your party the night before. Bring food and we're going to celebrate together. Uh, another part of that, that day that's really special is we are transitioning from external leadership to internal leadership. So in, it, it's a, a really significant special moment for us as a church uh, on that Sunday. And we're excited to introduce to you um, the internal leadership team. Most of you already know them, but we're going to bring them up front have a special prayer, eat some food, enjoy each other's company, and we hope you'll be there. Sixth anniversary, October 7th. And then one more celebration. Carrie and I, along with, I think, the Eichners, um, we went to Front Porch Church in Baltimore. Their launch was last Sunday, and it was incredible. 133 people in attendance at their launch Sunday, uh, which we, it was just a real, and it was a great room. Like, those of you who know Andy and Janet, they have such a gift relationally to draw people from all walks of life. 
And it was just a really diverse, really beautiful crowd. And we're just really excited about what God has begun in Baltimore. So be praying for them and then pop in on them. They meet on Sunday afternoons at 5 p.m. in an Episcopal church. So it's kind of ironic. But drive up to Baltimore one day. It's about a 50-minute drive from here to their church service and surprise them. I know they would love to see your face and um, have your encouragement. So we began this teaching series two weeks ago, Love Your Neighbor. Uh, It is a teaching series based out of the greatest commandment in Scripture, and it's in all four Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we've been using Luke because with Luke, we get an example. We get a a metaphor, a story. It's the, the story of the Good Samaritan. And if you've read that story before, you might, you're probably familiar with it, but we're going to read it again now. It's Luke chapter 10. So if you want to flip in your Bible there, we're going to read the whole version of it again. It's on page 725, and I'm going to read verses 25 through 37. <clears throat> on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? Jesus replied, how do you read it? The man answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Then he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he put put the man on his own donkey brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So that is the picture that Jesus gives us in scripture of what it looks like to love our neighbor. And I talked a lot about the context of, you know, why did the priest and Levi go on the other side? Why why was it such a big deal that this Samaritan helped this Jewish man? Listen to week one, because we kind of deep dive into that. It had really major religious and ethnic and social implications. And and it's a made-up story. It's a parable. But the reason Jesus uses all these different little details is because he wants to shock this lawyer that's asking him, questions. He wants to break all these different paradigms that he's looking through in regards to the greatest commandment. So I would encourage you to go back and listen to week one. So basically, to sum up everything, when we follow the greatest commandment, when we love our neighbor, for that brief moment in time and that brief place, everything is as it should be. So not, uh, not only does following this command bring heaven to others, it brings heaven to us as well. Because loving your neighbor will spiritually, physically, flush the toxins out of your mind and your heart. Loving your neighbor will replace any hardness or cynicism or anger you have with the softness of love. This is why it's so critical. It's why it's such an active move, something tangible. Not everything Jesus says is tangible. A lot of it is very mysterious. This one is tangible. 
love your neighbor. And he gives a specific action and, and, and uh, an active story for us to follow. So one personal and cultural infection that the greatest commandment has the ability to cure is that of poverty. There are different types of poverty. There's material poverty, which is often systemic, uh, meaning poverty cannot be conquered by money or by simplistic solutions. It's very nuanced to lift someone out of material poverty. Um, Typically, it requires uh, a healthy network of relational support of multiple different people. So people living in material poverty can feel alone, trapped, powerless. So loving our neighbors can lift people out of that type of uh, poverty. Many people in our church have participated in a wider circles wraparound program, which plays out this strategy of love your neighbor with a group of people of relational support, um, wrapping around one of their clients to lift them out of poverty. We also have what I think is going to be an opportunity to do that in a communal way as a church. I'm going to introduce you to a friend of mine next week named Lenise, who is working with um, Hispanic refugees in Silver Spring. And I think there's something that they've been meeting in the living room. And I think God is stirring something up that he, he, it's kind of that Samaritan or Jewish man on the side of the road. And we can't go across to the other side. There, there's something that needs to happen. So she's going to be here next week and we're going to do a little Q&A. There's also another type of poverty. And that's what I want to focus more on today. And I think it's overlooked in this story, but it's a systemic condition, and that is relational poverty. One significant fact that can't be overlooked in this story is that the Jewish man who was attacked was alone. And historians talked about, I quoted this the first week, you would have to be a fool to travel that path from Jericho, from Jerusalem to Jericho alone. It was a dangerous road. He was alone. So why was he alone? There, there would have to be, we, we could read in, I think we could responsibly read into the text that he was suffering from relational poverty because no one would travel that road alone. Uh, they would typically travel in groups and it's a problem being alone, especially if you're wounded, whether it's relational or physical wounds, being alone is no way to recover. It is no way to heal. So we have people in our lives that are participating in systems that either lead to relational poverty or further enhance relational poverty. Relational poverty is a wound, and those inflicted by it may not be self-aware enough to understand what they're suffering from. They're entrapped, and they may not even realize it. They need a modern-day Christ-like Samaritan to cross the road, pursue them, lift them up, dust them off, attend to their needs, and befriend them. That's what it looks like in the modern day. So relational poverty can actually be tough to see. I mean, if I'm driving down the road and I see someone who is struggling to change a flat tire, I can immediately see a material poverty. Like, oh, that person needs help. I know how to change tires. Or maybe you see they they don't have a jack to, to lift the car up. Oh, I have one of those. So it's really easy to see that need and to fill that need. Relational poverty is typically a little bit more, um, I think it's harder for us to maybe see or be aware of at first in the midst of it. Relational poverty, I think, is actually pretty ugly. Um, It may actually turn us off. So like the Levite and the priest, they had religious ceremonial laws that that, that caused them to kind of repel from the injured man on the side of the road. And for us, 
I think we have a tendency to do that with relational poverty because it, it can be ugly. So someone at work snaps at you like out of the blue or you've got a really passive aggressive family member and they just explode on you verbally. That's relational poverty. It's like it's the same thing of like a wounded animal. When, a, when an animal is wounded, they're more likely to attack or to lash out. So someone who is relationally wounded is more likely to attack verbally. And that's when we might have that tendency to, uh, whoa, do I really want to engage this emotional nut in a rational conversation? Do I just, a lot of us have that instinct of, I'm just going to walk away. I don't want to deal with this. Or maybe some of you are, oh, you want to dish it out? Okay, here I come. And it's boom. And you come back at them and you attack. You get on the defensive. Relational poverty Ooh, man, it can be ugly. I read something recently. I don't know where I read it at, but I liked it. So most of us spend the rest of our lives recovering from what happened to us between the ages of 5 and 15. I'm like, yeah, that's kind of true, actually. We develop these wounded habits. Um, I think most people have experienced relational poverty and never done anything about it. They've just let it, the scar tissue build up. Time can heal physical wounds. Time cannot heal relational wounds. That's important for us as Christians to know. So going back to someone who snaps or is angry or is emotional or hateful, um, we, have, we have the option. We can, leave, we can do the Levite and the priesting and distance ourselves, or we can be the Samaritan and we can engage. And we can do it like the Samaritan did. The Samaritan did. So how would the Samaritan react? How would Jesus react? What would that look like? My guess would be, I always think of Jesus as the calm in the midst of the storm. Like, they're out on the Sea of Galilee, which is a story in Scripture. There's a huge storm. The disciples are freaking out. I mean, you talk about an emotional mess. They think they're about to die. Jesus is asleep. They have to wake him up. And I just imagine him kind of yawning and saying, like, peace be still. And then everything just calms down, and he goes back to sleep. Like, that's how I want to be in the midst of relational poverty, in the midst of everybody else is riding an emotional wave of pain or anger or cynicism. And I have this ability with the Holy Spirit to just engage in a calm and beautiful and loving manner. In order to do this, though, we have to rid ourselves of the fear or the insecurity of engaging that. We might even have to violate some social and cultural rules. I used to do this as a public school teacher. I didn't preach about Jesus from in my public school classroom, but I would engage in, in a very, I would violate borders when I felt like it needed to be violated. When I saw someone, I remember one of my students was killed in a car wreck and people were really suffering from that. We have to ask ourselves, is this the right time for me to potentially cross boundaries that aren't supposed to be crossed? Because Jesus did that. That's the whole story of the Good Samaritan. He's alluding to in, the, in, in, in this parable is all these different cultural rules that were being violated by the Samaritan man. We might have to do that. In order to tend to relational wounds, you're going to have to step outside of some unspoken comfort zones and social barriers, barriers. The Samaritan had oil, wine, money, and the relational fortitude to violate these long-held social barriers. It's kind of a potent combination. I said this in week one, are you willing to be hated in order to love? And then Jesus took it up a notch on the cross. Are you willing to be killed in order to love? That is the ethic that Christ is trying to lead us into. Are we going to 
faithfully follow that one step at a time or are we going to dig our heels in or cross to the other side like the Levite and the priest? Do you have the spiritual maturity that rises above the relational poverty that you encounter? I want you to really think about that. I'm going to repeat it again. Do you have the spiritual maturity that rises above the relational poverty you're encountering in another person? Because I think that type of spiritual maturity is incredibly rare. I rarely see it, and I rarely hear about it. But when I do, I know it. Like, whoa, that's Christ. That's the Good Samaritan. I think, and honestly, I think it's a weak spot in our church community, just to keep it real. I think that is something we really struggle with. Violating, being willing to step outside of our comfort zones, cultural, social boundaries, conquering fear and insecurity, and having the spiritual maturity to engage someone that's struggling with relational poverty. I don't see it much, and I want to see more of it. There are a few people that come to mind, like my counselor, Eric, my wife, uh, my friend, Eric, people who I think, whoa, they have the spiritual maturity to engage relational poverty. That inspires me. And I see it regularly. And there are more people that I think of. But that's what I want for me and for our church. And if you've been part of Restore for a while, you know I do not like boiling big, nuanced, massive topics down into simple bullet points. But I I do think we need a track, a a foundation to spring off of in order to engage people who are, uh, in order to relieve people who are living in relational poverty. So there are three actions that I regularly see in people that I would label spiritually mature, the kind of people that are the calm in the midst of the storm who rise above the emotion and the tension of relational explosion or relational wounds and know how to handle it and, and, roll, and, and roll into it. And so these are the three habits I see. Number one is love. And you're probably like, uh, yeah, we could have told you that, Aaron. You love the wounded person unconditionally and remind them that God loves them just as they are. So a renowned priest, Brendan Manning, said, God loves you just as you are, not as you should be. And if you really think about that, that's incredibly challenging to love someone as they are and not as they should be. People need to feel your unconditional warmth and acceptance and love. If you want the ice to thaw in their minds and their hearts, you have to provide the warmth. And it may take time for it to slowly melt away. But that's the kind of love. And this is the hard part too. That kind of love tends to work the best in the most emotionally raw moments. So if you're waiting for things to just calm down, like, okay, I'm going to let them cool off. It's probably going to have a bigger impact if you can figure out how to engage in that very moment of volatility. Like when they are a complete mess, whether they're hateful or just sad or you know, you, different adjectives of, of relational woundedness, that is when you engage. That is the Jewish man wounded on the side of the road. That is when you move in armed with love. And it is, uh, it's probably going to be messy. Just get ready for it. But it's what Jesus is calling us to do. And the second thing is truth. The Jewish person needed the Samaritan to lead him to shelter, a place to recover. 
And you need to discern how to lead poverty-stricken people into a place of healing. Allowing them to wallow in their self-pity and their anger and their cynicism or their relational disappointment, that's not helping. All right, you're just letting the wound fester and it's going to turn into gangrene. They need someone to walk them out of hell. And they, know, they, and they may be stubborn and be like, I'm not in hell. I've, I'm good. And you're thinking, you're not good. You're a complete mess. I can see it and, and I'm feeling it. But are we willing to guide them out of that? Because you know, being a safe place for someone to vent, yeah, that needs to happen. But it cannot continue to happen for months or even years on end. It's scientifically proven that actually does brain damage. It can rewire someone's brain to let them just wallow in anger and cynicism and self-pity. So are we going to lead them out of that into a place of restoration? Because that's what Jesus does and that's what he's calling us to do. And again, that's going to make us uncomfortable to do that, to engage in that. Because it's incredibly tempting to just um, sit with someone and say, yeah, uh uh-huh, oh, I hear you, oh, that sucks, and let them be real and raw, but then not, not shepherd them, not pastor them, to let them live in that tension and pain. We can't do that. We have to bandage, bandage them up and lead them to a place of healing. And again, this has to happen. You have to conquer the fear and insecurity that you might have. Like, I don't know what I'm talking about. I don't either, people. I, I'm not like a guy that walks into every relational situation and knows what to say or do. That's actually quite rare. I'm not great at reading a room or reading a situation and knowing exactly what words need to be spoken. Do I give them a hug? Do they hate to be touched? Do I say this? Do they, do they not like words of affirmation? Do they, are they just going to say I'm full of crap? We got, we got to get rid of all the insecurity and all these fears that run through our head and just act and be willing to make a fool out of ourselves. Be willing to be hated. Be willing for them to blow us off and walk away. Lead truth and, lead and, and he, leading someone into healing is not easy, but it's what I see in spiritually mature people. And then the third thing is prayer. And it's another powerful resource at our, at our um, at our disposal, and that's the Holy Spirit. And the great, the Holy Spirit is the great comforter and the entity of God that is in us and near those who are in relational poverty. And it's the easiest resource to release, and that resource is commonly released through prayer over people. Our kids are having a fantastic time down there. That or someone is suffering from relational poverty and just having an emotional breakdown. It's one of the two. But prayer do you pray with people? Do, are you the one that initiates prayer? Do you pray over others? And I know, that, again, this taps into fear of, I don't know what to say. What, are they going to think I'm weird? Like, these are all things that we have to get over. Love, truth, prayer. Those are the three things I always see, and they're actions in spiritually mature people. And again, I'm going to say it, I think our church really needs to grow in that area and all three of those. These are the building blocks of spiritual maturity and we need to act on them. And they are simple acts. They're just incredibly hard to do. Like it's really simple, love, truth, prayer. Okay. But then really hard to act on those. And I get the fear and insecurity of fulfilling the greatest commandment to love God and to love others the way it should be in heaven. 
you have to act on that and you have to love and you have to lead people with truth out of their woundedness. You have to pray with them. It's hard. We're going to actually deep dive into relational poverty in, in uh, our next teaching series. I'm actually going to have my counselor, Eric, come talk about this. He's going to do a whole sermon. And then afterwards you can say, okay, so tell me about Aaron. How crazy is he? Like I've been meeting with him. Carrie's been meeting for seven years. To conclude, as a, th- that's individual stuff you can do. Love, truth, prayer. As a church, there are some opportunities this fall that I think tend to the need for love and truth and healthy relationships. So we've got our anniversary Sunday coming up. Don't underestimate the power of eating together, celebrating what God has done, listening to stories of RC church members share about how God has worked in them through our church. Don't underestimate such simple things as sharing a meal with Christ at the center and Christ's stories being shared. It'll do your heart well. The second thing is missional community, which meets twice a month in people's homes. Um, the third thing is we have a women's Bible study starting October 10th, and that's from 7.30 to 9 p.m. on Wednesday nights at the living room. That's going to go through November. A great thing to, for yourself, excuse me, December. It's going to go through December. Um, it's a great thing for you to create the margin for for growth and connection, and to invite other women into as well. And then the fourth thing, the men's retreat, which is coming up November 9th through 11th. It's a holiday weekend. The cost for that is $175, $175, not $1.75, $175. Uh, we're doing what we did last year. We're headed to a big cabin in the Shenandoah Valley. We're going to have great food, fun, beer. Ben Thomas, who spoke last year and did a phenomenal job, he's coming back this year. It's a great opportunity for connection and for growth. Will you make the margin to do it? Will you create the time? Will you commit to something like that? Those are all activities that will, I think, enhance our spiritual maturity and lead those of us who are still struggling with relational poverty out of it. Or you have the opportunity to invite someone you know who needs love, who needs to experience environments like that. Take the opportunity to invite them into that. Let's continue to look for the people that are wounded on the side of the road and what we can do to relieve their relational poverty. Let's pray.